I want to welcome you to, again, to Hagerstown Church. It's a privilege uh, for me to be with you this morning. Um, I actually have been out of the pulpit for right at a month now, and so it's good to be back here, I've, although I've truly enjoyed God bringing us uh, young men who are able to handle the Word of God and, in a sense, cut their teeth, and, and, uh, and I, I know that I was encouraged and strengthened by that, and I pray that you were as well. But this morning, I want to jump back into the second sermon in our God With Us series. And so, as you know, uh, hopefully that we are now uh, in the New Testament, and so that's an exciting time. Not that we're out of something, but that we've moved on and we're seeing progress as a church. Um, I want to talk to you this morning, though, about mic drop moments. All of you guys, all the sound crew just got really nervous. All of us really appreciate a good mic drop moment, don't we? We really like one. At least we do, the sound guys don't, but confidence, authority, hints of sarcasm, loads of finality. We look for these mic drop moments in our lives and we enjoy them. Sometimes it's a humorous statement as shared among friends or sometimes it's a serious one and we love the power and the, the style, and the, 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 the solid moments. I'm not even sure how this whole mic drop thing got uh, started, but I know this, it's an expensive habit that we are not going to start here. I don't plan on beginning to do that, but as I got to thinking about mic drop moments and I was, as I was looking at our text this week in Matthew chapter 4, I thought, man, if, if that is not a mic drop moment, as Jesus is faced off with Satan himself, the great tempter, the adversary, our great adversary, and he faces off against him, and he keeps throwing out these one-liners. And they're real zingers because they're the word of God. And he, he drops them. And three times, there's no answer from Satan. Nothing else can be said. Nothing needs to be said. Nothing more. And finally, Jesus, our Savior, tells Satan to get out. To be gone. And in a sense, drops the mic. End of story. End of discussion. Game, set, match. The Gospel of Matthew, I want, you to, I want you to turn there to chapter 4. We see Jesus' defeat of Satan. He's batting 1,000, right? He's not failed to, to, in any temptation. When it comes to, to temptation, it's probably safer to say that we drop the ball than we drop the mic. Our track record is not like Jesus's. Which is to say, we don't experience victory in the face of temptation. Not in the same way that he has, and it's sad. Temptation is extremely common. There's not a one of us here this morning that does not face temptation. It's very common, but what's not so common is the victory that is offered to us. It's not quite as common. Last last week, Brett, he uh, led us into our new series, which was God with us. And the long foretold Messiah had finally come. He was God, but he was also man. He was our Savior. Jesus is born, and he lives somewhat of a typical Jewish life until his 30th year. And then what we read is he approaches John the Baptist, the baptizer out in in the wilderness, living in the wilderness, and, and coming out to the Jordan. He meets him there, and as Jesus walks towards him, John cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John hesitant as Jesus presses forward and requests to be baptized. John relents. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens crack open, the the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove 
The voice of God the Father rings out. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Immediately after that, the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness for a time of preparation. Soon he'll be preaching and healing, bringing joy and confidence, a message of repentance. At this point in time, the Spirit of God leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted. So if you have your Bibles, we'll read in chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel. If you don't have a Bible, there might be some available in the back. It'll also be on the screen this morning for you. We're going to read together Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his, he will give, uh, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall not or you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. God, this is your word. We have no hope other than this. This word that we love so dearly is the cradle on which Jesus himself rests. So as we lift it up this morning, we ask that you would shed light on it. We pray that as we are encouraged by this text, that we would be encouraged to worship your son, Jesus Christ. We would thank you from the deepest parts of our heart with gratitude that you've supplied him to your people. Jesus, we make much of you this morning through, the, through your text. Spirit of God, we pray that, again, that you would enlighten us and we ask these things be done in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Jesus comes up out of the water and he's led by the Spirit of God straight off into the desert, a barren place. And that barren place, the wilderness, is often associated with demonic activity. Not only is it associated with demonic activity, but it lacks nutrition. There's nothing in the wilderness for you to live off of, neither spiritually nor physically, which is fitting because Jesus has gone there not to feast, but he's gone there to fast. He's gone there to spend some time one-on-one with his Lord, with his God, with his Father, somewhat humorous as we read this text, Luke's, Luke's account is similar. It says at the end that he was hungry. I'm not surprised, are you? Jesus is hungry. On a simple level, I'm sure that you would agree that that we're most vulnerable in those moments as humans when we're hungry and when we're tired, when we're sleep deprived. And sleep deprivation and hunger can turn even the kindest man into more of a demon. But it's interesting at this point that Jesus, clearly full of the Holy Spirit, 
being led by God to fast, to go without eating, just as, and being directed to go into the wilderness is now stronger probably than he was before in some form or fashion. He's found strength as he has, a man, leaned on his Lord. It's interesting that, that Jesus was led into the wilderness for the purpose to allow Satan to tempt him. And it's odd because Jesus teaches his disciples, he teaches us, to pray that we would not be led into temptation. And yet Jesus, thank God, faced off with our enemy intentionally on our behalf. What, what encouragement for us this morning. Look, look back at verse 1. The word there for temptation, it's also the, the same word for test. And it makes sense that, uh, that Jesus um, would be tempted by Satan right after he'd been baptized. That Satan would come to him and begin to, to, to question and to test as to whether Jesus truly believed what God had just said about him. He was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. And so these, this word for temptation is, a, is the same word for test. And I think it's translated properly here in the English in our, in our Bible this morning. But I think it's helpful for you to know that test and temptation are, are brothers from the same mother. And Jesus is there in the wilderness being tempted. He's being tested by the devil. Verse 3, it says that Satan shows up for the very purpose of that, to test, to tempt. I think he's there to derail the plans of the Messiah. He's not a fool. He, he knows the, the plans of the Trinity and their intentions towards God's people. And there, if at all possible, if there is a way, Satan is there to stop him. So he shows up to give it the old college try, right? And it's from this account that, that we as Christians, we draw strength and hope as we face our temptations in life. You see, Jesus is teaching us here, even as he's being tested, even as he's being tempted himself, he's teaching us. And here's kind of what he's saying. If you're taking notes, this is kind of what he's saying. Regardless of our physical needs, our sinful desires, or our righteous ambition, God demands perfect obedience of his word, and yet only Jesus is able to fulfill. Regardless of our physical needs, of our sinful desires or our righteous ambition, God demands perfect obedience to his word and yet only Jesus is able to fulfill this. So effectively this morning, we'll go back and look at what we just read. Effectively, Jesus is tested on three fronts. He's tempted in the areas of of obedience. He's tested in the area of trust and he's tested in the area of worship. And essentially, these questions are asked of Jesus. Will he obey? Will he obey? The second question that's asked of him, will he trust? Will he place his confidence in his father? What his father has said about him? And finally, will he worship? True worship, undefiled before God. Will he truly worship? First, let's look at will he obey. And there in verses 3 and 4, it says this. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's apparent that Jesus was submitting to his Father's will by not eating. He was the fast. 
It was the Father's will for his life. The Spirit had guided him and led him out into the wilderness, and now it was leading him to fast, to go without eating. Typically, food is what that, that would mean there. It's definitely true, given the context. It's in these moments, though, that we experience our weakest version of ourselves. And remember, though in those moments we would be possibly the weakest, Jesus is not. As Jesus fasts, he actually becomes stronger. And there's a reason for that. You see, when Jesus is fasting, he's depending. Oftentimes we think of fasting, we think, well, it's just some kind of a work that we do. And God blesses us for it. We work hard in this thing and God will give something to us. It's some type of an exchange and really it's not. It's an act of dependence. As Jesus leans into his father, that is where his strength comes from. He sets an example for us this morning that we too, in our weakness... As we fast and demonstrate a dependence on our Father, we too will receive strength. Jesus demonstrates for us, he he prays, he he teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. This is what we should pray. Oftentimes when we think of daily bread, we think of 2,000 calories. We think of our, our physical needs and that's what we teach our kids sometimes. And I think the daily bread, our daily needs is so much more than three squares daily. See, Jesus realized that his greatest need was not physical, though he was a man. And though he had physical needs, he realized that his greatest need was not physical, it was spiritual. In fact, this is his very response. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you believe that this morning? Do you really believe that this morning? That we, we don't live by bread alone. Take it or leave it, Jesus says. We live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And Jesus is acting on that. He's fasting. And let me tell you this, fasting is an outward expression of an inward position. Fasting is an outward expression of an inward position. Fasting is like the calluses on a farmer's hand. It's like the grease under the fingernails of a mechanic. You see the calluses and you know that he has had his hand on the plow. And when you see the grease under his fingernails, you know that he's been turning wrenches. And when you see somebody that's been fasting, you know this. That man, that woman is depending on his Lord. He's depending on him. Quickly, as you just think of your life and we think back to this burden that we all face, this this issue of being tested and being tempted every day, seemingly all day, and not having the same results that Jesus Christ has, I want to offer this to you. Is it possible that's because you're not depending on your Father? Even if you were to fast, even in some weird self-absorbed way, It's idolatry and works-based as if you can somehow earn something from God. Jesus here is saying, I need nothing more than God. I need nothing more than my Father. And so he depends on him. Jesus' example of fasting, we, we see that it's not an avoidance of something. He's not just trying to avoid bread, but he's looking past this bread. He's looking past this spirit or physical need to something spiritual. 
And, and, and he's not just not doing this, but he's actually being nourished spiritually. You see, it's, it's easy to forego stale bread and cold butter when you know a piping hot porterhouse, medium rare, is on its way. And on that plate is a side of mashed potatoes with all the, the toppings. It's loaded. It's easy to, to, to forego that bread if you know that that's what's coming. This is, this is essentially what Jesus is doing. He's saying, yes, I'm hungry. I have a, a physical need here this morning. But he's saying, so much more than that, I need, I need God. So much more than physical sustenance, I need spiritual sustenance. Jesus knew what was ahead of him. He knew what he was facing. And he knew that he would need this relationship with his Father. And so he spends that time there for us and he models it to us as well. That's a beautiful example. That him, deity, clothed in humanity, relies on his Father. How much more do we need pure humanity? How much more do we need to depend on our Heavenly Father? Christians, I'm convinced that one reason why Christians fail so regularly in temptation is that they, are, they focus on the temptation. They focus on the here and now. They even focus on avoiding the bread. And those of you who have tried to do the carb diet, it's so difficult, isn't it? But we have to look past what we're to avoid and we look forward to pass that into something more that's greater which is fat and, uh, and other things, right? Bacon, right? That's what we do. Instead of trying to avoid making bread, Jesus looks to the one who gives the bread. Instead of trying to avoid sinful sexual relationships that, that we're faced with on a weekly basis, why, why shouldn't we long for that spiritual fulfillment that God has promised to all of his children? Instead of clamoring and wrestling for approval and validation at work and also in the home, why not look to the Father as Jesus did? So often we wrestle with the, the or settle for the, the moldy bread when God offers the fresh, something far greater, something more nourishing. We settle for the mirage when God is actually offering the authentic. Not Jesus. He won't be distracted. He knows what he needs. He knows what's greatest in his life. I think it's worth mentioning again that Jesus is not fasting to get something from God. He's fasting to get God. He's not using God. He's not using that relationship in some way to to get what he wants that is other than God. Again, that's idolatry. How terrible. Those are the things that we did in 7th and 8th grade. In ninth and 10th grade, we, we used people to get what we wanted. How idolatrous, how evil of us to do the same with God. No, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't fast to get what he wanted. He fasted other than, uh, nothing other than God. This is what he wanted. I love how John Piper puts it. He says, speaking of fasting, he says, If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. He said, if you, if you long, if you, do, if you don't long for God... It's not because you've drank deeply and have been satisfied. That's not why. He says it's because we've nibbled so long at the table of the world and our soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. When the, when the main course has come, we've stuffed ourselves with bread. We've ate too many chips and salsa. 
And now we're not hungry for the things of God. And this is one of the, the gifts of fasting. We set aside these things that in and of themselves are not sinful, but they distract. We set aside the things that are sinful, that distract and weigh us down and fill us up. And we allow our hunger for the word of God. We allow our hunger for the very presence of God to be stoked. And this is what fasting is. It's a wonderful quote. You see, we get so enamored, enamored by the things of the world and what it all offers and all the, the items that, that are presented before us that we're just not interested anymore. Let me say this. No amount of bread will sustain you. No amount of physical bread will sustain you if God is not willing that you be sustained. You need to know that this morning. There's no illusion here. There's no amount of medical expertise that can sustain you either. No amount of money, no amount of exercise, no, nothing will keep your heart pumping a moment longer. Nothing will keep air in your lungs a second longer than the willing nature of our God in your life. And of course, he gives grace to us through medicine and intelligence and exercise and nutrition. He gives all these things to us and he works in and through them. But his presence in his word in our lives is paramount. And far more important than any of these. In Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. That old uh, analogy that the youth pastor would use, he takes the jar and he sets it there, and he takes all these little tiny pebbles, you know the story, he takes the sand and the water and he puts it all in there first, the little things, and then he tries to take the big rock and put it in there and it won't fit. All these little things are keeping that large rock from fitting inside the jar and lid going on. It ain't going to happen. If you're to dump all those little things out and you put what's most important in first, the Bible says if we seek the kingdom of God first, all of these other things, all of our needs will be added to us. It may not look, what you th- look like what you think it'll look like. It may not be exactly the, the flavor or the brand or whatever, but what you need, God will supply. This is a promise. When we seek first the kingdom of God. The warning for you this morning is that if you're not careful, if you don't grasp this truth, you will enter into the next life with a belly full of bread, but void of God. You may may exit this life with a belly full of bread, but your life void of God. And absent of the presence of God. I'm going to change gears a little bit here. Did you you see how Satan qualifies his temptation, his question? He says, if you're the son of God. When we read that, we wonder, is he actually casting doubt that maybe Jesus is not the son of God? It's possible. I believe that he thinks that Jesus is the son of God, but that's not really what he's trying to cast doubt on. I think what he's actually trying to, to cast doubt on, not the sonship, the relationship of God and his son Jesus Christ, but I think it's more him trying to cast doubt on the part about God being pleased with him. See, God, the Father, speaks out in front of the people to Jesus, his son, and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It'd be difficult for Jesus to not believe he's the son of God, but it might not be so difficult or outlandish for him to believe that Maybe God's not pleased with him in some form or fashion. Maybe in his humanity, he's not enough. 
Satan is telling him, hey, Jesus, I noticed you're hungry. Why is that? If you're the son of God, the, the one whom with God has found pleasure, why don't you make yourself a sandwich? Why are you hungry? You see, bread is that basic representation of our daily need, and, with, and Jesus was without it. And Satan is saying, why do you have need? Meet your own personal needs. You, you're the son of God. Do it. Make yourself some bread. God's not going to, he says. You deserve this. It's your prerogative. You ever hear that whisper? The whisper of Satan? We'll get to him in a minute. He exists. And he tempts. And similar things that he has said to Satan, he's probably said to some of us. This morning, you, you've probably heard this. You deserve this. Why not? Satan is introducing a cloud of doubt to, to cause Jesus to prove his own sonship and to do it by disobedience. It's a, it's a real temptation there to use his relationship with God in a way that's inconsistent with his God-ordained mission. And I'd offer you this morning that that's probably the same for you as well. That the temptation of Satan is for you to use the relationship that you have with God in some form or fashion that is inconsistent with what he has planned for your life. He wants you to, to disobey. Maybe not so far out of line. Is there really anything wrong or sinful about eating bread? Of course not. He's done it all his life, Jesus has. But in this moment, it's disobedience. So he rests in his relationship with his father by obeying. The same sneer that we see, if you're the son of God, actually happens, it happens here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it also happens at the end as he hangs on the cross. They call out, if you're the son of God. Where'd they hear that? Where'd they hear that question? Who's whispering in their ear? If you're the son of God, come down. Save yourself. Call the angels. Let justice be served on your behalf. Tempting. Christ and his humanity. That very act would have undone it all. It would have gone against his father's will. It would have gone against the covenant of the Trinity before time. That this was what Jesus would do. This is the difficult task that he would fulfill. And there on the cross, Jesus became obedient to death, which, listen, is intrinsically human. Death is only related to humans. It only, it, only, it only happens to humans. It doesn't happen to God. Jesus submits to even the death on the cross. He, he, he submitted himself to, to hunger, to weariness, and a, and a myriad of other things. Jesus and his humanity is humbly on display here. He submitted himself to the basic circumstances that are far below him, the ones that govern humans. What is he saying in that moment as he hangs there? As he trusts the Lord? He trusts his father in full obedience. Your will, not mine. So what did Jesus do there in the, in the, in the wilderness? Would he obey despite his own felt needs? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And quickly, Satan moves on to the next temptation. He asks, he asks another question in his mind, as he considers Jesus, he says, will he trust 
So yes, he obeyed, but will he trust? Look at verse 5. It says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's saying, If you're the Son of God, prove it by forcing God's hand. The devil's trying to tempt Jesus to test whether or not God will actually fulfill his promise of protection instead of just trusting God to do what he promises. Jesus was tempted to force a situation where he would be saved from falling and simultaneously authenticate him as the Messiah. He's tempted here. Will he, will he trust At its base, trying to tempt the Lord is manipulation. It's a reversal of the roles. It's idolatry. It's you trying to call the shots. You trying to figure things out. And God is welcome to put us to the test. And for good reason. We're unfaithful. Simple. But we are not invited to put God to the test. Not in this manner. Why? Why should we not? Has he ever given us a reason to not trust him? Has he ever demonstrated a lack of faithfulness? Has he ever demonstrated deceitfulness, untrustworthiness? No, he hasn't. Perhaps Jesus is saying in his mind, well, you know, not everybody heard you say what you said, God. I, I just, I would like to kind of force your hand a little bit more. I'd like for you to say that again, and in a way that more people could see you. That was, that was out at the Jordan. I, I want it to happen at the temple. It, this is a great place. Let's do it. Let's change plans. I, I want to see, I want you to demonstrate for everybody else that I am the Messiah and that I can trust you with my life. There's a temptation there. And you say, well, Jesus wasn't tempted. Of course he was tempted. Of course he was tempted. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. This was a real temptation. So oh, he doesn't know what it feels like. He doesn't know. That's if, as if you're saying that God was not human, that, that he did not actually put on flesh. Of course he did. And he knows what it feels like to be tempted. He knows what it feels like to be drawn away from the Lord. Drawn to a place of, of distrust. Fundamentally, that's what Satan wanted to expose in Jesus. He wanted to expose a level of distrust. Have you ever wondered if you could trust somebody? Really look at them and you say, yeah, can I trust this person? At what level, to what degree, with what, and with what uh, aspect of my stuff can I trust this person, right? I heard the other day a man say, I would trust that man with my wife and my wallet. And I thought, well, that's, that's pretty good. It, that's a pretty good level of trust. But have you ever wondered if you couldn't trust somebody? We have no right or reason to ever doubt what God says that he will do. Well, Jesus is tempted here in this moment, this level and this aspect of darkness in the face of temptation, what does he say? Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quickly, I just want to say this. If you'll notice there, there's a quotation there that Satan uses to, to kind of give credence to what he's saying, to his temptation. He says, hey, Psalm 91 says this, the angels will protect you. Satan is really good at that. Confusing God's people, confusing the world, and causing us to, to, to 
foolishly misinterpret one passage and make it be at odds with another. And truth is never at odds with truth. And God is never at odds with God. And Jesus has obviously learned enough, close enough to the Lord, familiar enough with the word of God that he would know that that is not truth. And he's tripping about, would that be a testimony for us as well? We would know when Satan's trying to tempt us and trip us up, even to the point where we think innocently that we're doing something that's well within what God has allowed and even called us to do, would we not fall into that same trap that so many have before us? Well, Jesus trusts. Yes, he trusts. He obeys, he trusts. And the final question is, will he worship? Will his worship of Yahweh be pure, of God the Father? Look there at verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In this final temptation, Jesus has offered something that he had already been promised. It was already his. It was as good as his. It was the Father's to give, and it was Jesus' to receive. And yet, in this moment, a similar offer has been made, and yet it will cost Jesus far less. If you remember Jesus in the garden, what does he pray? God, if there's any other way, let this cup, let this path that you've charted out for me, let it pass. If there's any other way, and what happens? Nevertheless, though, your will and not mine. Is that not true worship? Laying everything before the God of this world, before Yahweh, every single part of us and saying, God, it's yours, whatever you'd have. These are my preferences. This is my will. Nevertheless, your will be done in my life. Jesus looks at this temptation, some figurative place, some sort of vision Jesus is able to see everything, all the glory of the world. Satan says, fall down and worship me and it'll be yours. And Jesus says, falling down and worshiping Satan is far easier than dying on a cross. He, He peers into the future and he knows what he's covenanted to do, what he's come here to do. And yet what does he do? You shall worship the, the Lord your God, and him only shall you worship. Him only shall you serve, Jesus says to him. This power, it was the Father's to give and Jesus's to receive, and yet he followed the plan that God had laid out for him. May that be the same of us. May that be said of us as well. When we're tempted, when, we're, when we have better offers, as it were, that we would realize if it involves bowing down to anything else or anyone else other than God that we would run from it. Wasn't this Adam's temptation as well? To receive something seemingly good but out of turn. We know it was Abraham's temptation as well. Countless passages in scripture, saints that have gone before us, tempted to receive something that really is theirs to have and yet they receive it in a way that is unpleasing to the Lord out of his will. That's Satan's play. How is he tempting this morning? We know that he is. 
How, wh- what is it that, God, that you think God wants you to have? You're trying to go about it and get it the wrong way. What is it? That's idolatry. Church, it's pragmatism. Pragmatism is the ends justifying the means, and really, pragmatism is a form of self-worship. It's a form of self-worship. This is what I want, and this is what I've been promised, and I'll do what I can, I'll do what I need to get it. It's pragmatism. It's idolatry. The ends does not justify the means. God's will and God's word, they alone justify the means. Jesus replies with Scripture, the very words of God, straight out of the Old Testament, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Get out of here. I love that. This is how it ends. Satan leaves defeated. The angels, they come and they minister to Jesus. And one commentator pointed out this. He said, Jesus had refused to relieve his hunger by miraculously turning stones to bread, and now he is fed supernaturally. The very thing that he wanted, the very thing that he had been tempted with, now he gets. Now the little stones get poured in supernaturally. It's a beautiful thing. He'd he'd refused to take a shortcut to inherit the kingdom of God, and now he fulfills scripture by bringing his ministry and announcing the kingdom in Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus was victorious. Everything that Satan had offered him, Jesus received. But he received it in a way that's consistent with the will of his father. If you think about it, though, this is a fun part here. Who's there right now? Jesus. Physically speaking, Jesus is alone. But yet we have this account, and Jesus didn't write Matthew. So how did Matthew know this story? Just imagine this. Jesus comes back from the wilderness. He he gathers his crew. He begins his ministry and they begin to, to work and to, to, and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal miracles and cast out demons and or, or miraculously healing, all these things. And at night they're tired and they're laying around that campfire and their eyes are getting heavy. Peter's just laying there and he's got his hands behind his back and he's looking up at the stars and he's thinking, recounting all the things that God has done that day through Jesus. And he says, hey, Jesus, will you tell us that one about how you defeated Satan in the wilderness? I love that story. Will you tell it again? And just think Jesus sits up in his humanity and he says, Peter, I love that story too. Let me tell you. And he begins to recount how through the, the very word of God, he defeated Satan. And Matthew and all the disciples, they're listening to that. And God uses that time possibly. And that's, we don't know if that actually happened, but we can assume that something like that happened because here Matthew has written it for us. I know this. This is what Matthew is saying as he, as he writes this. As the Spirit of God inspires him, he's saying this. That Jesus was powerful enough to defeat temptation. And so are we. That's what, that's what Matthew's saying. Matthew's saying Jesus was, was powerful enough to defeat temptation in the face of Satan. And so can you. But how? So now we're back at the beginning. Jesus defeats temptation, Jesus defeats Satan, and yet we don't. It's very common that we are, we are tempted, but not so common that we defeat temptation. And so how do we do it? I want to quickly jump back into this passage and move quickly through it. I want to show you three practical points that if we recognize these three things, that we will find victory in our lives over temptation. The first is this spiritual danger. Spiritual danger. I want you to notice quickly the high level of interaction with the spiritual realm in this passage. 
It's very abnormal. We don't run into this a lot. Shamefully, right? Being led by the Spirit. Jesus is led by the Spirit. You might say, that happens to me all the time. Well, that, that's great. And I wished it would more, right? Because it doesn't happen as much as it should. That we truly be led by the Spirit. That we feel His Spirit, the very Spirit of God leading us. And I'll say this, oftentimes, as we said just a moment ago, the Spirit of God working in our hearts is so, uh, so akin to the Scripture of God working in our hearts. The Spirit of God we see here. We see angels ministering to Jesus. We don't see that all the time. And the very presence of Satan. We're able to peer through this passage into the spiritual realm and see that it exists in tandem with the physical. Jesus was aware aware of the spiritual realm, and we should be as well. If we want to see victory in our lives, we have to recognize that this is a dangerous world. It's not a neutral world. It's an evil one, and it has an agenda. It's been said that during his time as president at FDR, he really struggled to come to grips with how the Nazi regime and Hitler as the helmsman could be as evil and devilish as they were. One night at dinner, he was speaking with a pastor and the pastor began to talk about a theologian, Kierkegaard. And what did he, what did he say? Let me tell you about this guy, his theology. He began to tell FDR about the depravity of man, about original sin, and about the concept of Satan And that pure evil taking place in Europe, it began to make sense to FDR that night. This is why. In his own heart, he he thought it neutral. In his own country, he thought people neutral. He began to realize that, no, they're not neutral. There are forces at work. There are forces at play. And in a sense, he was able to peer, just like we have this morning, into that spiritual realm. See what's taking place behind the scenes. As good Christians with solid theology, we understand the nature of man, that it's fallen. It's bent towards sin. We know this. But our flesh is not the only enemy. Our flesh is not the only enemy. Some of us, we we think us too intelligent to believe that Satan is a person and that Satan exists. And in 2019, I'm here to tell you, he absolutely exists. And if you don't believe that he exists, you are in more danger than you know. Perhaps the the most heinous and dangerous enemy that you have is the one that you think that he doesn't exist. So your flesh, evil within, and Satan, evil without. And these two forces combined, when we ignore them, when we forget about them, when we put our blinders on, we are destroyed by them. Who is Satan? Scripture tells us that he walks about seeking whom he may devour. If you don't have your guard on, if you're not looking with eyes of faith, you will be devoured. It's as simple as that. Do you you see our plight? Evil within, evil without. We're in grave spiritual danger. We need the Father. We need his protection. We must depend on him. And this is where we have begun to notice the difficulty. We don't notice the difficulty. That's the problem. We don't even know that we have a problem. There's a serious connection between the danger that you perceive and then the need of the power of God in your life. When you realize the danger that you're in, as that increases, your desire for God and his protection in your life against your own flesh and against Satan himself will increase. Do you see that? And so how is Jesus successful? How can we be successful? Number one, we've got to realize that there is a dangerous world that we live in. The waters are infested with sharks. 
And how foolish are we to believe that we can swim through it and be safe? Next thing you know, your face, your picture will be on, uh, on, on Instagram or on Facebook as you're swimming calmly along and there's a 40-foot shark right, be- right below you, right? That's, that's the world that we live in. And I, I have a hunch. Jesus is fasting. I have a hunch that you probably don't fast that much. And he, he, here's what I would link that to. I know that's the case for me. It's the correlation between spiritual wickedness, my recognition of it, and then my need for God to rescue me from that. It follows that, that your lack of fasting results in the lack of power, and your lack of power is a result of the lack of dependence on the God of power. So our situation is dire, but it's not hopeless. We, we have to realize the danger and then run to safety. We have to realize the danger and then we run to safety. And that, that leads me to the next point. What safety do we run to? What safety do we run to? And that's the, the scriptural power that is made manifest in Jesus' action here. And so we, 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 we saw the spiritual realm, and now we need to look at the scriptural power. Three times Jesus says, it is written. Jesus must have been an Awana Sparky because scripture was on his mind, right? He was oozing the scriptures. And not just any old passage, not just random things, all of Jesus' responses in this passage, they all come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 to chapter 8. That's where, he, that, that's where his D group was at that week. That, that was his F260 plan that week. And he didn't just glance at it. He knew it. It was in him. He stared at it. He meditated on it. And he knew that he needed it. And he demonstrated to us that we needed it as well. Jesus, he had literally hidden this in his heart. And if he needed to do that, if he did that, how much more do we need to do this? To hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against him. This is a need that we have. And again, this, the filling of the Spirit and the scriptural power, these two things, they, they accompany one another. Jesus meditating and quoting scripture. Satan flees. When Jesus was squeezed, scripture came out. What oozes out of you? When you're squeezed, when you're scared, when you see dangerous things happening, when you, this, is, this is the life that we live. This is the week that we've had. People dying. People falling prey to sin. Marriages collapsing. We see all these things all around us and in those moments when darkness comes in, what do we do? What do we do? Do we run? Oftentimes we do. But we don't run to Scripture. We don't run to the Lord. Shame on us. This is what he's offered to us this morning. Jesus, it was oozing out of him. It was like another language to him. You ever watched a TV show and you begin to speak another language with some friends that they watch the same show and there's all these inside jokes and applications and everything can be tied back in some way to that. This is what Jesus is doing. When the going gets tough in the face of temptation, he begins to speak just scripture. That's all he says. It's powerful. That's there for us this morning. Perhaps you'd say, well, it's so difficult to, to really understand Scripture and to memorize it, and, and, and I agree. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't memorize and study the Word of God. I wish it would come easier, but it doesn't. But does anything in life that's truly valuable come easy? Imagine you were invited to go to your friend's house. They make you a meal. The meal is pretty good. 
When you get done, they invite you to go into the parlor, into the living room there, and you go and sit down, and, and the guest, she, she stands up, and she's, or the, the host, she stands up, and she says, hey, I'd like for you guys to, to, to hear um, a, a, a musical piece that I've been working on, and she walks over to the piano, and as she gets to the piano, she turns, and she sits down on the bench, not facing the piano, but facing you, and at the same time, she pulls out a kazoo out of her pocket, and confidently, she announces to all the people in the crowd that she will now play Beethoven's Sonata number 8 in C-sharp. And she begins to play. Are you impressed? As she hums on the kazoo, are you impressed? Do you sing along? Do you hum along? No. (laughs) You're shocked. Why would she think you would enjoy somebody humming on a kazoo? She wouldn't do that. Every single thing in life that's worth doing is difficult, is it not? Including, why would it be any different than scriptures? Why would they be any different? We have to work. We have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. It's hard work. And yes, our sinful frame, it impedes us and it holds us back. But through the power of God, the Spirit of God working in our lives as we pursue, and as we meditate, it will come. So Jesus meditated on the word and we should, we should too. He chewed his bread up really, really good. He broke it down. He savored it. His body was actually able physically and spiritually to what? To receive the nutrition And if we eat our food at all, we swallow it whole, spiritually speaking. There's no chewing, oftentimes. Jesus recognized that the word of God had authority over his life and that it was sufficient for his life. And so he rested in that. Verse 4, Jesus says, he quotes, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Think about that as like a comic book series. Every time the next one comes out, that's what you got to have, whether this producer or artist or whatever it is that pre- creates some type of a product that comes from their hand or out of their mouth. What do we do? We want that, right? That's, we love that. And Jesus is saying, that's how we live with God, by everything that he produces. And what does he produce? The word of God. The entirety of the scriptures that we have, and it's there. It's sufficient. It's authoritative in our lives, and Jesus demonstrates for us how we are to respond. And it's likely that that is your desire this morning. It's, it's likely that you truly want the word of God to permeate your life. And that you truly want to be victorious over sin and to defeat the temptation of Satan in your life. I'm sure that that's true of many, if not all of you. And as you look at this story, you're, you're thinking, well, yes, those two things, that's helpful that we see the spiritual realm and we, we also see the scriptural power, but it's, it's not enough. Maybe you're worried about that. Those two things aren't enough. And if that's your, if that's your concern, I'm, I'm with you. It's not enough. Imagine going to a fair and you see somebody standing on two bowling balls that are stacked on one on top of the other and they're bouncing back and forth and they motion to their their assistant and the assistant throws three swords over to them and one at a time and they start juggling these three swords and then he throws a a lit match at it at the swords and they catch on fire and he's doing this while he's playing a kazoo all these things are happening at the same time and you're you're watching it and you saw first thing step on the bowling balls that's step number one okay got it maybe you're even taking notes you're videoing it Next step, okay, get somebody to throw you some stuff, right, right? You got all these steps lined out, but just because you've seen it, does that mean that you can do it? No. Just because you've, you, you even know the steps doesn't mean that you're going to be equipped, right? And so Jesus, as an example, that's so helpful. My goodness, it's helpful. 
to see Jesus leaning into the scriptures, to see Jesus leaning in and recognizing the spiritual realm and living in light of these truths that are revealed, it's so powerful, but it, it's not enough. And so the third thing that we need to see in this passage is, is saving grace. The third thing that we need to see in this passage is saving grace. Philippians tells us that Jesus became obedient unto death. Death is intrinsically a human characteristic, as we talked about a moment ago. Death, hunger, thirst, weariness, temptation, all of these things we face as humans, and every single one of those things Jesus defeated. Every single one of them. And because Jesus has defeated them, we too are able to. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Able to help does not mean coach. It doesn't mean, hey, now I want you to lean this way and put your foot over here. That's not what's happening. It's far more than a coach. He's our star player who single-handedly defeats the enemy. Single-handedly brings victory. Even just the, the comparison between Israel and Jesus demonstrates that for us this morning. Israel, they demanded its, it demanded its bread in the desert and died in the wilderness. Demanded their bread and died in the wilderness. And Jesus, they couldn't do it. They couldn't obey. They couldn't worship fully. They couldn't trust. What does Jesus do? He denies himself bread and he retains his righteousness and he lived by faithful submission to God's word. He did what Israel could never do. Church, he did what we could never do. And so he's far more than our example. If that's, if that's where you leave this morning, that's, that's the worst thing that could happen. If you leave this morning thinking that the answer to defeating temptation is trying harder, memorizing more scripture, and, and looking for demons behind bushes, if that's what you think this message is about, then you're in trouble. You're headed for disaster. Just mimicking Jesus is going to get us hurt. You, you, you can't do it. But, but Jesus can. And Jesus has. I, I realize that my dog is a crazy critter. It's a crazy animal. And for all the crazy, stupid things that it does, there's one thing that I do, that it does, that I think I got respect for. It makes sense. Other than digging holes and chewing up everything. The thing that it does is, when it's hungry, it doesn't stare at its bowl. How foolish. Like the bowl will just spring. Maybe you're fancy and you have one of those bowls. But our bowls don't do that. And so our dog, when it's hungry, doesn't look at the bowl and say, I need this daily bread daily bread. He doesn't look at the, the plastic tote that has a snap lid that it can't get through. He doesn't look at that and say, you are what I live for. You are what I need. When he needs to use the restroom, he doesn't stand at the door saying, open sesame. All of these things are foolish. The dog is not very intelligent, but it's smart enough to know that all of the things that it needs come through my hand. And so when that dog has a need, you know what it does? It comes to me. Sometimes it's patient. And its presence is enough for me to know, oh, I should feed you today. Oh, I should let you out. Oh, th this or that. Maybe you're scared. Whatever it is. I, sometimes it's just presence. Sometimes it has to get my attention. And it does, right? And how, how much greater is our God? How much weaker is the bread that we look for? How foolish, Christian. That we would look to these silly things to, to give us sustenance and to really guide us and, and to say, yes, we need bread more than we need the word of God. How foolish. All of these things come from God's hand. Every single one of them. And you say, well, who is God's hand? It's Jesus himself. 
So this week, when you're tempted to look at these things that, you th- are, that may bring fulfillment, realize this, that they don't. Maybe it's a gift that God has given in the past, but it's not what is sustaining you. It is God himself. As I think about this, I was reminded of, a, of an old hymn. I'm going to read it to you this morning. I won't sing it. It goes like this. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior in life more abundant and free. Next stanza says, Through death into life ever- everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Or sin, or, or us, sin has no more dominion, for more than conquerors we are. I want to read the refrain to you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Church, I want to tie it back together here as we close with this thought. Just repeating what we've already talked about. Regardless of your physical needs, regardless of your sinful desires, or even your righteous ambition, God demands perfect obedience to his word and yet only Jesus is able to fulfill. And so if you get nothing else out of this message this morning, if you get nothing else out of this passage, get this, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And in the face of our weakness and in the face of temptation, as we don't measure up in obedience or in trust or even in our worship, that Jesus does. So we, God, we pray that the, the one that's far from you this morning that recognizes, even as early as this morning, that they don't measure up. That there's sin in their life that's creating a rift between them and you. We pray that they would look to Jesus this morning and see that though they can't, he can they would turn from their sin, God, that they would lay it down, that they would hate it, that they would trust in Jesus alone to save them. God, for the Christian who has done that, would you remind them of this? That Jesus is enough. In the face of our temptations, God, that we would look to your son, Jesus. We wouldn't look at our temptations, that we wouldn't look at our, our, our demons and, as they are, but we would actually just look to Jesus. Look past all the needs that we have. We just look to the hand who provides. God, Jesus, we make much of you today. We lift you up. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified in our lives this week. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.